This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. That one you levicated to all the bicycle riders in. Bicycle rider, bicycle rider. Welcome to this week's edition of the Yarra Bicycle Users Group radio show for Monday the 26th of October 2015 and Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, we're a show about bicycles and related transport issues from Melbourne, Australia, broadcasting from 3CR 8.55am community radio. Thank you to Democracy Now! for the last hour of current affairs. My name's Chris. Uh, today we'll welcome back, uh, sorry, Sasha or Alexandra? Alexandra. Hang on, we'll just turn your mic on. So, um, and we'll be going to be talking about his master's thesis, Gender Difference in Perceived Safety of Cycling in Melbourne. And sort of thing, could we riff on about that today? I guess we could probably say that in Melbourne, only a quarter of cyclists are female. So yeah. if we brought that uh, up to speed, we'd have 50% more cyclists. Because I was looking at the new bike account thing that uh, Bicycle Network have put out. And here in, in uh, Yarra, we're pretty high percentage, even though it's a, it comes off a low base. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, looking at their uh, Super Tuesday counts, I think we're sort of sitting maybe in the high 30s for percentage of cyclists that are women, but that's you know still nothing compared to sort of 45 to 55% that you see in places like Germany and the Netherlands. Yeah, and uh, also today, very shortly, I'll be talking to Ian Radburn from the Bicycle Institute of South Australia about recent minimum passing distance, which are now the law of South Australia, which actually were yesterday, uh, 25th of October, so we'll be talking to him quite shortly. You presented last week at um, Bike Futures for Bicycle Network. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, so how did you find that process? Because, you know, it's part of your master's thesis. How do you find presenting? Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, Bicycle Network gave me a fair bit of help. Uh, Bart, uh, Bart and his colleagues at uh, Bicycle Network uh, helped sort of with, with sort of setting up the survey that, that I've been doing as part of the research and hosting it on their server monkey account. So it was a yeah a great opportunity to go and uh, you know talk about stuff so that doesn't just sit on a on a dusty shelf and uh, meet some like minded people. Yeah, because we'll probably be talking a bit more on the program about what um, outcomes you've done from this um, from all this research and also you know what what have you got planned for the future for it? I would like to, as I said, ha- have it not sit on a dusty shelf. So maybe condense it down from a uh, you know academic document into something that's that's a bit more flashy and maybe. See if I can set up some, uh, you know, meetings with advocates, politicians, the like. Yeah, because that's the thing. Yeah, I was I was looking through the, like uh, the actual research that you've done. Yeah, you know, you're doing a lot of the comparative analysis of literature and the yep. stuff and the like as well. I'd have to say, like the infrastructure thing that keeps coming up, and also like you know the perceived danger barriers. Mm-hmm. It's, I have to kind of bring in a bit of a point here, you know, because we've had so much news about cycling stuff in the last week or so. We've got you know, there's trials on um, for carrying bikes on buses. We've got a new strategy coming out with $100 million in it for cyclists and um, pedestrians. And I kind of have that overview of we're a bit timid, though, really, when it comes to putting out cycling initiatives. Why can't we just do the really good study data analysis and just go ahead and do it? Well, I think in in Melbourne, like in a lot of cities in Australia and also in North America, the car is king, and so you're 
a lot of the time it's not just about the money that's being spent, but perhaps uh, road space that's being taken away from parked cars. Or p- People have this perception that if you put bicycle infrastructure in, it's going to inconvenience them, even if that's not the case. Yeah, because that's, that's the real elephant in the room for one of a bit of a cliche, is yeah, how do we fight back on that sort of stuff? You know, we've got how many people are moving to Melbourne every week now? Mm. We're going we're gonna to overtake Sydney. As um, I've been in Melbourne what, 25 years, and I've just seen the density in the inner city just rise and rise and rise from like ghost towns to like um, you know all this kind of infill development going in, and you just simply just can't drive everywhere. No, I mean cars make sense uh, definitely in the suburbs, oh, yeah. and they make sense yeah. uh, for people who need to make deliveries or elderly people that you know sort of can't might not be able to get around otherwise. But um, yeah, apart from that, in a, in a dense area like this, it's just physically not possible to have everyone coming in by car. Mm. It was an interesting thing to touch base on um, last weekend, not the weekend, just gone the one prior to that. There was a Challenger Highway uh, consultation put on at the Northcote High School by Vic Roads. Yeah, they've got stuff that I think over eight storeys, if not higher, and there's no provision there for extra public transport. Mm. And it was really interesting looking through the new uh, thing that was launched last week, and name escapes me because we have so many of these bicycle strategies and stuff come out. But uh, part of the little um, breadcrumbs in that was like, you know, a new crossing at Challenger Highway. It's like, we need a bit better than that for cyclist infrastructure, just having a new crossing next. You know, it's that train bridge. Yep, yep. Where um, old Amcor is. We need a little bit better than that. It's, it's a failure of integrated planning. It's, you know, it sort of comes down to the fact that most things are approved by councils, uh, uh, developments, apartment buildings, things like that, and they're not really in a position where they can go, right, this is how much is happening in our area, therefore it needs to be matched with uh, public transport supply, bicycle lane supply, things like that, because that stuff is uh, run by the state government. Unfortunately, it's just nowhere near as well coordinated as it should be. Yeah, well, it comes into, I think it's the integrated transport provision or something that they're not looking at properly. Yeah, because yeah, you're putting your high to medium density housing in, and it's like, oh yeah, we'll have everyone right, but you also got to have PT as well. So, a um, little bit more about we'll get we'll get into the interview proper in a minute. I'm just waiting on a phone call if it's going to come through. Have you had a chance to have a look at this uh, new safer cyclists and pedestrians fund thing that's come out last week? So it was put out last Tuesday, and it's been remarkably quiet in the media. No, no, I haven't taken a look at it yet. Okay, because um, they've got all these community consultation sessions coming on, and they're predominantly outside of Melbourne. Right. Okay. So we've got two in actually in you know inner Melbourne, which are you know Box Hill and Melbourne. Yeah, it's it's a bit quiet. It's it's really interesting because look, Donlan actually announced this at Bike Futures last week, last Tuesday, mm-hmm. and so it's a hundred million dollars. I haven't heard anything about it. Well, I think it's a good thing that they're not just talking to people in Melbourne, but talking to people uh, outside of Melbourne. People in, um, I guess, regional towns um, rely on cars much more because there's just, you know, in terms of the public transport supply, and there's towns that used to be served by rail uh, where that all basically got ripped up in the the 80s or or earlier. So I guess especially for for young people, young people trying to get to to, to jobs over there, they do need uh, cars. Mm. We're just going to take a quick break and be back in a tick. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. 
And you're back on Yarra Bosco User Group Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM in Melbourne. And on the line today we've got Ian from the Bosco Institute of South Australia. Good morning, Ian. Morning. Okay, we're going to have a quick chat about new minimum passing distance laws that came into effect yesterday in South Australia. Yeah, that's right. Uh, about a year ago, um, the government initiated a citizen's jury uh, process um, where they um, gathered together a random group of, uh, of the community. And um, I, I don't know if you know the citizen's jury process, but um, they um, were able to call up as experts and got submissions and all that sort of stuff and came up with their uh, recommendations. And uh, two of those were to... Um, legislate for a, a specified minimum passing distance, um, one metre if it's uh, less than 60 kilometres an hour and 1.5 metres if it's above. And another one of their recommendations was to allow adult cyclists on footpaths where it's unsafe to use the roads or there's no bicycle facilities in a sense. So those two measures have been now uh, put into place as, as of yesterday. Yeah, because I was noticing on the Bicycles True to South Australia website put out a call out for assistance to get this, you know, get get feedback. And they will come into law on the 25th of October, but will be no longer apply when the Legislative Council votes. Is that still applicable or has that situation changed? No, I mean, yeah, that, that was a concern that we had in that, um, um, you know, this time last week, uh, the situation was that We've got a legislative council that if the uh, independents uh, side with the opposition, then these things can be disallowed. Um, and so although they'll come into place, they'll only come into place until the motion of disallowance and then they disappear again, which is which is still possible. Uh, um, but uh, I've uh, had a chat with the leader of the opposition um, and he said no, that the Liberals will be supporting the new regulation. So that particular concern has passed. Uh, we had the situation where the, um, I don't know if you know Nick Xenophon? Yes, um, we're very aware of him. <laughs> candidates in the, in the upper house was saying that they were going to move to disallow the regulations. And uh, yeah, at that, and at that stage, the Liberals hadn't said what they were going to do. So we were worried about that. Um, having spoken to the, minute, uh, to the leader of the opposition, he said that um, his office had been, quote, inundated, unquote, with concerns about cyclists on footpaths. Um, so he was worried about that and um, was very concerned that the government put up a decent sort of uh, uh, um, media campaign or, you know, advertising warning cyclists about safe and, and polite use of, of the footpath. Well, it's a shared space, really. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that's got to be made very applicable. Yeah, this is very interesting. Well, we've, been, yeah. we've been saying to our members, uh, look, you know, just because you can ride on the footpath, you know, your place is generally, you know, we sh- it's a political statement to be on the road, basically. You know, yeah. we, sh- we, sh- we shouldn't uh, allow our cyclists to be scared off the road uh, and, and banished to the footpath. Yeah, well, basically the new regulations clarify that the safe space that motorists have to leave when passing cyclists and allowing cycling for on footpaths unca- unless councils say otherwise. So, yeah, um, so does that kind of uh, local government overrule that or is the state government? Councils can specify specific. No, it's the, it's the councils themselves. They leave it to the councils to decide. If they want to put up a sign saying that a cyclist are not allowed on this particular bit of footpath, you know, they can't do a blanket thing, hmm. um, but they can specify a specific bit of footpath. Like, um, you know, if it's a very popular 
area that has uh, lots of pedestrians or, or whatever, or maybe it's outside a nursing home and they're worried about elderly people or whatever, they can put up a sign saying that cyclists can't ride here. I think um, that's fairly common sense. Well, yeah, yeah, I think it's common sense. And um, it, uh, I was chatting to um, the uh, transport senior transport strategy planner at Adelaide City Council, and I was saying to her that you know, uh, obviously you know you'd put up signs on, say, Rundle Street East, which is a, a very has very high levels of pedestrian activity. And she said, "Well, no, we won't necessarily. We'll just wait, see what happens, because we don't think cyclists will want to ride on those bits of footpath anyway." Yeah, no, so, uh, yeah. And I must admit, there they do have bike lanes, so uh, they probably wouldn't be allowed to ride on the footpath anyway. So, um, yeah, they can use that space, and, and I've seen it used in Hobart where they've put up these signs. Um, and fair enough, I think. Um, but um, the councils are hopefully going to be fairly cautious about putting them up and mm. waiting to see if there really is a problem first. Yeah, it's not actually uh, one metre. It's actually when uh, was it, uh, drivers are required to give a minimum of one metre when passing a cyclist when the speed limit is 60k per hour or less or 1.5 metres when the speed limit is over 60. So you got it's an interesting way of um, legislating it because, you know, you've had little bits of changes between how this sort of similar laws have been in um, like the trial in Queensland, then Tasmania... Yeah, it's, it's interesting you got the speed diff. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't looked at uh, other jurisdictions, but there's plenty of, um, of, of um, examples of a uh, specific um, distance being specified, in, particularly in American states, though that's where they seem to have been doing it most, um, whether they actually have the... Uh, the uh, distance specified or varied according to the speed limit, I, I don't know, but it seems to me common sense. Mm. So if people... Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. it, we... we uh, sorry, uh, but uh, uh, 60 kilometres an hour, and I think it's the same as right throughout Australia, speci- uh, makes a, a, a difference between the arterial roads. I mean, our arterial roads are generally 60 kilometres an hour and above. Uh, the rural roads are 100 um, and it's the um, the ones that are local roads that are under the control of the councils that are, are 50 kilometres an hour. Okay. Or, so if people yeah. want to look up about uh, these laws, can they go to the Bicycle Institute of South Australia site or SA, uh, what yeah, your yeah, the, over there is? I, I do uh, what we call DIPTI, which is the Department of Planning, uh, Transport and Infrastructure. It's, it's emblazoned on their um, um, homepage at the moment, uh, www.dpti.sa.gov.au. Okay, thank you so much so for your you time today. you type in transport yep. at the, the government, that'll find it. Yep. Okay. okay then, thanks. Thanks, See Ian. You, bye. bye. How to Make Trouble and Influence People 2016 Diary will be launched at Friends of the Earth Food Co-op on Friday, November the 13th between 6 and 8pm. Join us at 312 Smith Street for speeches, readings and performances of classic Australian protest songs by Laura McFarlane and Jimmy Ratt. A benefit for FreeCR and the Lost Said Ross Biological Reserve, the diary features... 366 radical dates in Australian history plus dozens of images and stories. Copies will be available on the night or can be ordered via freecr.org.au. How to Make Trouble and Influence People is a FreeCR supporter.
you're back listening to Yarrabug Radio and Community Radio 3CI55AM and Digital. Okay, we're going to talk about infrastructure, perceived risks and the quality of the riding environment. So, so you reckon a lot of it's got to do with people's perception of how safe they are or how comfortable they feel riding? There's basically uh, n- not complete overlap between what might be actual safety outcomes and what makes people feel safe. So you can look at uh, crash stats. So Vic Roads maintains a database from uh, police records of where crashes have occurred, and you can look at which crashes have involved cyclists and things like that. Um, but those things don't always line up to uh, what makes a place feel safe to cycle or a place uh, feels uh, comfortable. Uh, and people are basically not going to cycle um, if they don't feel safe and comfortable. Um, a minority of people will, and uh, that's basically why we have only a minority of people cycling in Melbourne, especially outside the inner city centre. Uh, now, there's an interesting gender difference there, and there's a whole lot of sort of psychological literature that isn't really my field, but uh, it would appear that women uh, tend to be more risk-averse than men, uh, and there's a whole range of explanations for why that might be the case and, you know, gender differences in socialisation as we're growing up and things like that. So the research that I've done, um, I've looked at... Uh, I've done a survey of people that cycle down Canning Street in Carlton and North Carlton. For people who don't know, that's a very, very high-quality cycling route where basically cars are discouraged uh, from using it as a through road. So you can definitely drive on it to go home or to visit friends, but it's not convenient as as a through road to get to the outer suburb. So what you've got is really a quiet street that's really good for cyclists to use as an arterial to get out north. Um, now, conditions like that typically attract a d- more diverse range of cyclists. You don't just see that the mammals, the uh, the, the guys in their five thousand uh, dollar carbon fiber bikes, but you see more kids. You see, um, you know, women and men in basically equal numbers. Um, people that are just sort of out for a casual ride. Um, so, the, why I was interested in looking at that is because that's a much broader picture of what cycling could be compared to just say, cycle, uh, surveying bicycle networks membership, which um, is not really representative of the general population. So you've got to understand the general population to understand uh, how you can get more of that general population on their bikes. Yeah, because it's a very um, nuanced approach in terms of you know you, you, some of the points, uh, complex in- interaction between individual social environment and physical environment. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, riding through Carlton North is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the... Yeah, the change is in being where you actually feel comfortable to ride. And it's something that those of us who are, you know, just ride, take for granted. And we don't actually perceive the differences sometimes or what people may see as actually a really large barrier. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't find riding in dense traffic a barrier. I actually find like having slower moving traffic in a bit of a wall on my side actually not that daunting, but some people may. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was just saying to someone the other day, I actually don't really mind riding in the city, in the CBD. I know that would be terrifying for a lot of people. I would prefer that to, say, riding down, like, Ligon Street or somewhere where there isn't a bike lane where cars are moving faster because it's, it's the cars moving fast and feeling like I can't keep up and someone's going to get a bit aggro that um, puts me off. But, um, yeah, I'm aware that, obviously, compared to the whole population – because I've been cycling for a number of years, I'm a lot more confident. So it's about looking at people that are at the lower end of that confidence spectrum yeah. and uh, how to allay their fears. And, like, um, we have to really bring out the point that a lot of infrastructure stops starts between local governments in terms of connectivity between areas. And you're trying to get from A to B or do your riding for transport. You're sort of riding, not the recreational sort of stuff. And 
what do you do? Do you go back streets? Do you go um, main main streets? I mean, okay, you compare Canning Street as a you know bicycle thoroughfare compared to some some of the streets I know down in Port uh, Melbourne, which are actually really ugly in a car and actually as ugly as a pedestrian and ugly as a cyclist. This work kind of like starts kind of coming back into is it a pleasant enough environment? And I think that brought brings in broader things about livable cities. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm one of the reasons I'm passionate about cycling is not just because it's it's something that's really good for people's health and uh, is is more efficient as a mode of transport in urban environments, but uh, in places where you get more people cycling and uh, not not as many cars going through, it's just a more pleasant place to be. Cars tend to create traffic that passes through areas rather than things like walking and cycling. Is is people just you know having a meander down the street, stopping, you, you get many more sort of cafes and the sort of vibrant streetscapes that uh, we love about inner Melbourne. Yeah, so in, in terms of the research that I've been doing, I has obviously been comparing men and women because there's a lot of research to say that uh, women are more risk-averse, and that's what I have found in my research. Uh, 50% of women said cycling, sorry, safety was a huge barrier to them before they started cycling compared to only 20% of men. So that goes a huge way, I think, to do, to explaining the, the really big gender gap that we have here that doesn't exist in some European countries. Um, and then I went on and um, because a lot of research focuses on quantitative research, so surveying and just giving people sort of check boxes and then comparing that, those numbers, which I have done, uh, but then sitting down and I've uh, interviewed uh, six women who participated in the survey and sort of really tried to get them to describe their cycling experience and sort of what things influence how they behave. Yeah, because I'm just looking through this, you've got the barriers – unsafe 50 percent and then you've got uh, various things of slower unfit equipment hills being hot and sweaty and something over 50 percent just pipping over 50 percent other yeah yeah there, there, there's, there's there's a whole range and that sort of goes back to what what, what you would have noticed there in, in the research mm. in my research that there's a, a complex interaction between um the, the, these three factors individual factors social environment and physical environment uh, comes out of uh, a model basically in physical health exercise, physical health research called the ecological model that's looking at how these different factors uh, relate. You can't just describe, you can't just explain people's uh, cycling behaviour, whether or not they cycle, where they cycle, in terms of the infrastructure, but also related to attitudes in society. So, for example, people might be more tolerant of cyclists. Around here you see a lot of cyclists, and you see a lot of cyclists that are more similar to you. Mm-hmm. So if you're out in the suburbs, the only cyclists you'll see are middle-aged men on $5,000 bikes, if that's not you, you're going to feel like cycling's not for you, whereas a more diverse picture lets more people get involved because they can, they can really see that it's for everyone. Yeah, so we get on to the motivators. Safe actually doesn't rate that high. No, people don't really go, I cycle because it's safe. They're only put off when it's not safe. But what's interesting is in terms of the motivators between men and women, there's actually not too many more differences. Women are more likely to be motivated by the fact that cycling's are environmentally friendly or a social activity. And in fact, in my interviews, uh, you know, a lot of people did say they got into cycling because friends or partners encouraged them. And one of the main findings was that sort of getting started is is the big barrier. And you feel like you don't know, you don't have the right gear, perhaps. Once you get over that barrier, 
it's a lot easier. So I think in terms of implications for getting people cycling, it's really all about helping people take that first step and then it all gets easier from there. Yeah, because it's looking at this as cheaper, faster, environment, health, fitness, all start coming in around about the 65 75% mark. Yeah. That's pretty amazing because, yeah, and then you've got friends encouraging and then you've got other under, like, 20%. But it's really interesting because we have this perception that women won't ride because, oh, it's not safe enough, and that's well under 25%. And you've got these other... Um, four main um, points, you know, as I said, cheaper, faster environment, health, fitness, come in at you know well over 50% into some of them 75%. So, yeah, I think we've got to start looking at this a little bit differently. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, one thing, I mean, of course, infrastructure is, is super important. And um, oh, yeah. um, basically, when I went to Munich last year, what, what I saw was that there was this kind of uh, t- two types of infrastructure. You had separated uh, lanes, so sort of like a, a wide footpath and half of the footpath is dedicated for cyclists, so there's no conflict with pedestrians on the roads where there's a lot of traffic or the traffic's going faster. But then 90% of the streets, all the back streets, are 30 kilometres an hour. So if you're a car, you get as soon as you can, you get on an arterial and you get to where you're going and you stay off the back streets. You're not cutting through the back streets. So that on the back streets, you don't actually have to spend money putting in bike lanes. Mm. Uh, so the infrastructure is super important. But then um, things like education and promotion. And in Munich, they had a, a photography competition that uh, sought to uh, communicate cycling as an everyday activity for everyone. So they got people to come in and have their photos taken. And they published these photos showing, you know, the... That the guy on his carbon fiber bike, but also a child going to school, uh, you know, a grandmother going to the shops, really painting it as a diverse activity. Yeah. So, okay, you presented last week at uh, Bicycle Network's Bike Futures. Where to now? Just quickly, where, where do you think you want to head this? We, we had a little bit of preamble about it earlier, but would you like to see this kind of like be used with local governments and state governments to? Uh, Yep. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'm, g- I'm going to condense what is a fairly long academic document into something that maybe see if I can wrangle a cartoonist friend of mine to make me some infographics, things like that, uh, and then maybe try and set up meetings with some, some ministers, local governments, and see if I can put it into action. I think this is the way to go because it actually does show up something that um, w- most people wouldn't picked up on in terms of perceptions of what is a barrier. Exactly, mm. yeah. Okay, we're just going to have a little bit quick of news and events because uh, we're running out of a bit of time. Okay, I'll just mention quickly that um, there was a Safer Cyclists and Pedestrians Fund uh, thing launched last week by Luke Donlan, and um, that's $100 million that's going to go into infrastructure that keeps cyclists and pedestrians safe on our road. So there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do with that. It's at Economic Development vic.gov.au and look up for cycling and walking and there's a couple of ways you, you can put in feedback for that. There's a whole bunch of community consultation sessions between November and December. There's also an online survey. It can also give formal um, submissions as well and I've popped that all on the Yarrabug um, events thing. So if you go to yarrabug.org forward slash events and it's got all the community consultations there. There's only really two in Melbourne. It's called a Box Hill, Melbourne, and the rest of them are regional. So it's pretty interesting. Well, if you call Geelong Regional, but there's a whole bunch of different stuff there. So, and next week is the last Bicycle Advisory Committee meeting for 2015, and that's going to be on the 5th. So um, go to Yarra Council uh, and look up the Bicycle Advisory stuff. 
And that's all we've got time for this week. So you can listen to our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast or yarrabug.org forward slash radio. And us presenters, we're volunteers and we rely upon the financial support of you. So if you'd like to subscribe and make a donation, make sure you check out the website at 3CR. And ch- uh, stay tuned next for Dirt Radio. And thank you today for Ian from Bicycle Institute of South Australia and yourself. And myself. You're, 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 you're welcome, Chris. Yeah, it was great having you back on the show because I think last time we had you on was like for... I think it was something East West Link related. It was East West Link related. Yeah, it was also uh, the uh, Royal Park Festival that you helped put on. Yep. Glad to be back. Great. Okay, well, well um, I'll be back in fortnight. Should have faith in uh, Val back in the studio soon. Pedal your blues away. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.